Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, politics in the classroom. Does Alberta have a problem with politicized education? Or is the problem merely an overreaction to how critical thinking skills are being taught? Also, analysis of the election results in the UK and why Jeremy Corbyn proved to be so disastrous for the Labour Party. Plus, new rules to protect airline passengers are about to come into effect, but do they go far enough? There's been a lot of talk lately about politics in the classroom. And look, I mean, you know, we trust our, our, our kids, two teachers, uh, that our kids are going to uh, sit and listen to their teachers. The teachers have the attention of those kids, and uh, we teach our kids to listen to what our teachers tell them. Uh, so if teachers are bringing uh, opinions and political agendas into the classroom, I think everyone would agree that's inappropriate. I remember a few years ago, my daughter had a teacher that was telling the kids about some weird internet conspiracy theory mcdonald's uses like some weird modified potatoes and you shouldn't eat mcdonald's fries because you're gonna die and i'm like what Why the hell are you telling the kids that like so that that i mean that bothered me uh but i do understand as well that that you know kids are going to learn about controversial issues and we certainly want kids to understand what the various issues are uh to understand different perspectives uh, to learn critical thinking skills. So what, what is going on in Alberta's classrooms? Are kids learning critical thinking skills or are kids being indoctrinated? Certainly the Alberta government seems to be suggesting it's the latter. The education minister recently tweeted a, a screenshot of a high school exam and held that up as evidence that certain opinions are being pushed on kids. But a troubling situation recently. Uh, story here from Global News, an annual Christmas dance at a Black Falls Elementary School was canceled after threats were apparently made on a Facebook forum. It stems from an assignment given to grade four students last week at the Iron Ridge Elementary School, according to Jason Lovell, superintendent of Wolf Creek Public Schools. As part of the social studies lesson, students were being taught about Alberta's land. Specifically, the outcome from that program of studies was around a central question. How do Albertans deal with competing demands on land use? Gives a number of different suggestions, including solar and wind power, recreation, agriculture, and oil exploration. The teacher used two video examples from about oil sands development, one from the government of Alberta and one from Greenpeace. Students were asked to watch each video and make notes about what they thought were the most important points from both sources. So that kind of cuts to the heart of the matter. Do we want kids to be exposed to these different perspectives to understand what the differences are, to understand the various sides of an issue? Or do we only want one side of an issue being presented to kids? A really uh, thoughtful piece on all of this up at mcleans.ca. Today from uh, our next guest here, Mac Fawcett, uh, is a freelance writer, former editor of Alberta Oil Magazine. Max, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Why do you think we're having this debate all of a sudden right now here in Alberta? 
I think part of it is is obviously the new government and and its approach to the education system. I think Jason Kenney for a long time has expressed concerns that you know teachers are, as you said, you know, quote unquote, indoctrinating kids with uh, you know a left wing agenda, and I, I think that is kind of those those sentiments are being are being expressed by a wider community of people now. I think also it's it's a reflection of of the length and and pain of the downturn that's going on in Alberta right now. That, that people are, are frustrated, they're hurt, uh, and they're looking for ways to, you know, find scapegoats, to lash out, to kind of get some of that negative pent-up energy out of their system. And so if they hear that, a you know, a teacher is maybe teaching kids about negative things about the oil sands, maybe they overreact, maybe they, they lash out. And so, you know, I think it's sort of a stew of those two things. Um, and ultimately, I think the, the people who suffer the most from it are the kids. Yeah, and I think too there's there's a perception that maybe the the Alberta government has, has let fester that this is somehow you know all, all the NDP's fault. But of course uh, the NDP had, they were in the midst of a curriculum review, but didn't actually change anything. So the curriculum we have is the same curriculum we've had for what I think almost 15 years now, right? Yeah, I mean it was it was the one that was brought in place in 2005. So that that was a Ralph Klein government. I don't. I don't think he was opposed to oil and gas. I, certainly not how I remember yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm sympathetic to the the argument that people make that you know teachers as a whole can kind of tilt a little bit to the left, same as journalists. And and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But the, you know, the fact of the matter is, those views, those sort of slightly left of center views, they're out there in the world. You have to engage with them. Uh, you can't just dismiss them, and you can't hide your children from them. So. You know, I think it's important that they encounter different views, different perspectives, maybe than some parents have, and, and learn what are their arguments, what are they saying, and, and maybe how should I be thinking about their arguments and ways to to come back at them. So, you know, I, I'm not I'm not here to suggest that there aren't occasionally teachers that will take the lesson plan a little more uh, in their political direction than maybe they should. You know, in both directions, I, th- I think there's definitely conservative teachers out there as well, oh, yeah. but. But at the end of the day, kids have to learn how to how to process and and you know understand arguments that that they don't have or they don't share. That's that's part of being in the world, and it's an even bigger part of being in the world now with you know technology changing the economy seemingly every ten years. You you have to be nimble. You have to have a brain that is able to adapt and respond. And you know I think education is about more than you know teaching kids the multiplication tables. I think it has to be about giving them a set of intellectual skills that they can bring to bear on on a bunch of different situations. Right, and I even remember back in, in, in as early as junior high, I remember being tasked with uh, going out, finding a, a political cartoon from the newspaper, and then explaining what it is, you know, that the cartoonist is is addressing, what the issue is, and what the point is that the cartoonist is trying to make. And, you know, this exam that, uh, that Adriana LaGrange got so worked up about, they're still doing the same thing in schools, which... And when I looked at that, I thought, well, yeah, that that makes sense, right? It, it is about helping kids understand what's going on in the world, help uh, kids understand what, what different perspectives are and how to look at something and glean from that an understanding of where that person's coming from. Yeah, it, it was it was disappointing to see that question taken out of the context because the context, like you say, it, it's everything. It's not that the, the, the exam or the teacher or the school were endorsing that perspective, they were, you know, ex- exposing the kids to it and saying, you know, what does this mean? How do you how do you understand this perspective? And then how do you fit that into these other perspectives? It it was giving them skills and and to kind of reduce education down to, are you believing or are you saying the things that that uh, you know flatters 
you know, your province or your government or your country is not a service to, to kids getting educated. They need to know about as much of the world that's out there as possible. It's interesting, too. And, and I, I've asked, I think a lot of people asked uh, the education minister where the rest of that test was. Uh, the screenshot she posted started at question 13, which mm-hmm. would obviously imply that there were questions 1 through 12. Uh, and we don't have those. We still don't have those. The government never released those. Um, you know, it would seem to me that this was a test in which uh, kids were, were shown a pro-oil sands view and asked questions about where's this person coming from? Here's an anti-oil sands view. And where's this person coming from? I don't know. I mean, we can nitpick over which examples a, a test is going to use, but that, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. No, and it's a weird sort of purity test to be applying to, you know, the curriculum that you know, it can it can only allow certain views in or certain, you know, perspectives on the oil and gas industry. I think it helps them to students to see, you know, the, the full full range of things. And I don't think that these tests are, you know, like I said, endorsing uh, you know, Greenpeace's perspective, but Greenpeace is out there whether you teach kids about it or not. And, you know, guess what? It the holding information back from kids is a pretty good way for them to find out about it through another uh environment, you know. It's it's a lot like sex ed. Do you want them to find out in a classroom, in a supervised setting with a trained educator who can kind of walk them through the, the various aspects of it, the hard parts, the, the complicated parts, or do you want them to find out from their friends? Do you want them to find out from, you know, uh, another kid in the class who maybe doesn't have, well, not maybe, obviously doesn't have that training or the, the expertise? So I think on some level we have to put the trust in the hands of teachers, that they're, they're the people who are trained to do this work. Let's let them, you know, navigate the, the, the difficult waters that, that they've, uh, they've signed up to pilot. We're kind of at an interesting moment here as, as this new government embarks on, on its own curriculum review that, you know, as you say, people are feeling defensive about our energy sector these days, feeling as though it's, it's under attack and, you know, we, we all need to rally as Albertans. There is a temptation, I think, maybe almost to tilt the curriculum in a certain direction. If the government was tempted to really emphasize a pro-oil perspective in the curriculum, I, I, a lot of Albertans might be okay with that right now. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally understand both the political temptation on the part of the government and the inclination on a lot of the part of a lot of people to support it. They feel attacked. They feel unfairly targeted. They feel under siege. And then to have their kids come home from school and say, hey, mom and dad, I, uh, you know, I saw this Greenpeace video today in school, then maybe that's a little too much for them. Um, but I, I've been engaging in this conversation for the better part of a decade now. You know, I'm from Vancouver. I've lived in Toronto. I, I, I you know, I make the case for Alberta's industry where I can in, in difficult markets. And I can tell you the best thing that anyone could do if they want to support the industry is give these kids the whole picture. Let them understand the criticisms and the, and the, you know, the supporting arguments and let them engage in those conversations honestly, because that's what will, that's what convinces people. That's what tips people is not the repetition of the industry's talking points. It's the ability to actually engage with the other side's argument and unpack it a bit. And you can only do that if you know what the argument is. Yeah, and I think that applies on a lot of issues. And so I, I, I think, I mean, I would draw a distinction here. I mean, th- these aren't lessons, at least as far as I can tell. This is not, okay, kids, sit down and we're going to explain to you what the oil sands are. It's th- these aren't lessons about the oil sands, per se, is, is more, more of a case of whether it be uh, energy. I know that test that, that LaGrange had cited also addressed issues around globalization. You know, it's, it's about critical thinking skills. It's about interpreting different perspectives under different kind of issues. Do, do you see a, a difference there? 
I do. Um, I, I think you can expose kids to different arguments and teach them how to think critically without, like you say, it being a, an instructive lesson of these are the right answers. I, I think it's more these are some of the answers, and yeah. they're the answers you're going to encounter out there, and you should be familiar with them. But I, I, I read a piece in the Globe and Mail by an Alberta teacher the other day who was basically suggesting that you know, attempts to get rid of the politics from social studies is an impossible task. It is an inherently political area of inquiry. And so I think the government needs to maybe take a step back and and obviously not allow explicitly political things in the curriculum from both perspectives, but understand that social studies in, in its very nature is kind of political and kids need to know about that. Yeah, they do. And, 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 you know, but I mean, it harkens back for me. And I remember, you know, you you learn about uh, politics. You learn about what what it means to be conservative, what it means to be liberal, left versus right, the political spectrum. But, you know, the the curriculum isn't taking a position that here's what the right answer is, but here's what the wrong people think. This is it's more of a case of sort of objectively presenting both sides. And maybe that's that's harder to do with an issue like energy. Well, it's uncomfortable for people because they, on some level, feel like they do have the right answer. And so to hear the school teaching both sides maybe is a bit upsetting. But at the end of the day, I think parents need to remember, and I think most of them do, that it's about the kids. It's not about affirming their beliefs and their values. It's about ensuring that the kids have a wide base of skills and they can go into the world and into the education market and, and get a great job, have a great career, uh, you know, be be a be a part of the world, and you can't do that by shutting them away from the world. All right, much more to McLean's.ca. Your piece uh, from today is up there, Max. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right, Max Fawcett is a freelance writer, former uh, editor with Alberta Oil Magazine, and uh, his piece up at uh, McLean's.ca about all of this. As he says, does the Alberta government believe the education system role is to produce critical thinkers or compliant ones? Right. I mean, so how should schools address the question then of the energy sector? Should it just not be mentioned at all in a social studies context? Because whether it's, you know, globalization, whether it's uh, energy, whether it's other political issues, it seems to me that in social studies, and it's often why, you know what, I remember in school where you do debates and one kid or one group gets assigned one position, the other kid or the other group gets assigned the other. So it's not necessarily whether you agree with that perception. You don't have to get up and debate a certain perspective. So it means researching it, understanding what people who think that, what, what it is that, that motivates them, what concerns them, where they're coming from. And you're going to get up and you're going to argue that position. And when it comes to an issue like energy, is it reasonable for students to be exposed to different points of view, to understand what those different points of view are? Or do we just want one perspective being presented? Well, amid our own political drama unfolding here at home yesterday and the surprise resignation of the Conservative leader of Canada, it was a pretty dramatic day in the United Kingdom, a December election, one that saw Boris Johnson and his Conservatives secure a majority government. More here from Global's Redmond Shannon in London. 
Boris Johnson has already visited the Queen at Buckingham Palace, asking to form a new government. His huge victory surpassed the expectations of his most optimistic supporters. Johnson's Conservative Party will have more than 40 seats, more than the majority mark. The opposition Labour Party with its worst result in decades. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn says he'll step aside. It all means Johnson should be able to push his Brexit deal through Parliament and take the UK out of the EU in January. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. All right, so as you heard in that report, Jeremy Corbyn is indeed resigning as Labour leader, and this is what he had to say last night. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. And I will lead the party during that period to ensure that discussion takes place and we move on into the future. It seems like it should have been Labour's election to lose. Uh, Polls suggesting that a majority of Brits now believe Brexit was a mistake, and yet British voters handed Boris Johnson and the Conservatives a victory. Uh, So how much of this is a repudiation of Jeremy Corbyn and what he represented within the Labour Party, the direction he and his followers have pulled the Labour Party? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Andrew Apostolou, who's a historian based in Washington, D.C., but is active in the Labour Party. Andrew, great to have you with you're welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, so what do you make of what happened last night? Uh, an absolute and total rejection of everything that Jeremy Corbyn stands for. Um, a conditional acceptance of Boris Johnson. And he himself said that. He said that the people in mining communities, for example, um, communities that were devastated by the Conservative government and that have now voted Conservative, he said that they had lent him their vote. And he realized he was on probation with them. So he's very clear that he won on the basis of the discontent with Corbyn. Um, And so he has to be careful with those voters. Um, But for the Labour Party, it's clear to everybody it was a rejection of Corbyn. You know, we knew before the election that nine out of ten Labour candidates in London, which is a majority Labour city, did not mention Corbyn in their leaflets. And that tells you something. Normally, I mean, I can remember the Blair days where Tony Blair's face was pretty much on every page of the manifesto. Um, Corbyn was just poisonous, even to his own supporters. That's the interesting thing. They found on the doorstep, people just said, look, I don't trust Boris Johnson. Um, I don't necessarily want Brexit, but I just can't make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister. So if you looked at the opinion polls, Labour had no chance of winning this election at any point. The best they could have hoped for was a hung parliament. And even then, people just thought, you know, we've had so much political instability. They fell. I think people fell for the slogan, get Brexit done. It's kind of meaningless. But the, the notion in the UK that you have political arrangements, that you have coalitions, that you have governments without majorities... It's kind of alien to our tradition, and so I think people voted for a government that will get things done. Whether or not they actually can, whether or not we'll end up with the country being destroyed is another matter, because, of course, we have the problem with Scotland and Northern Ireland now. Right. But, you know, people took a chance, and, you know, oppositions can't complain when governments beat them. It's your own fault. 
One of the interviews during the campaign on the BBC and um, Jeremy Corbyn was was pressed about the question of anti-Semitism in in the Labour Party. And and he really equivocated. It was a really strange response he gave. And Andrew, the stories we were hearing uh, about Jews in England and in the UK contemplating, you know, whether they were going to stay in the UK, depending on how this election went. How did this become this specific issue, such a problem for for Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party? Well, having experienced anti-Semitism in the Labour Party at first hand, the problem I can tell you is this, that um, there is not enough solidarity and protection. What happens, what happens is, uh, uh, is that you know, people get harassed and other people just sit back and do nothing. And there's some solidarity, but a lot of people just are scared of the anti-Semites. They're scared of the bullies. And the problem was, you know, Jeremy Corbyn never explicitly said, if you're an anti-Semite, I don't care if you support me, get out the party. And when we had a, a Labour MP, Luciana Berger, a wonderful MP, when she was being harassed, and this is a woman, by the way, one of the safest seats in the UK, and she left the party, um, he didn't turn around and support her. When she came to the Labour conference with police, with police protection, he was asked about it, and he kind of shrugged and looked annoyed. What he should have done was walked into the conference chamber with her. That would have been a powerful symbol. I think for a lot of people um, outside the Jewish community, I mean, obviously, I think some of the stories about Jews leaving Britain en masse were exaggerated. Um, uh, you know, actually, emigration from the UK by British Jews has actually gone down in recent years. Uh, it's generally around 800 a year to Israel. Obviously, people go elsewhere. Um, but I think what it symbolized for people was just the untrustworthiness of Corbyn, that you know, this is Britain's oldest ethnic and religious minority, and they're not welcome in the Labour Party. This is a community that 100 years ago was actually there at the founding of the Labour Party. Jews played a huge role in building the Labour Party. I mean, the relationship is very close. And as Boris Johnson said, he said there were people who voted Conservative today whose parents and grandparents were spinning in their graves. Well, you know, it's the same with Jews and Labour. I mean, even people who vote Conservative in the Labour Party know... Um, if you're Jewish, you know that your parents and grandparents voted Labour. And so it felt like a personal betrayal. And so I think other people who maybe, you know, I mean, I know I've been in touch with Labour activists in places where there are no, there's no Jewish community, but who left the Labour Party out of disgust at the anti-Semitism. I think it just offends people's basic values. Now, of course, there are people who will say, yes, but what about Boris Johnson's comments about Muslims? absolutely correct mm. but nonetheless here was a guy jeremy corbyn who hasn't just made himself some prejudice statements he's associated with these anti-semites he's associated with holocaust deniers he's associated with terrorists he is not seen as patriotic johnson may be seen as a fake patriot a plastic patriot in many ways but jeremy corbyn is very much seen as a friend of britain's enemies i mean this is a man who invited representatives from Sinn Féin, which is, as you know, basically part of the IRA, to Parliament after they'd killed members of Parliament. There's something about that that really offends people. And I think in patriotic working-class communities, in the North in particular, it went down very badly. And he was warned, by the way. Let me say, I was one of the people who warned about it. There were MPs who warned about it. Many of us said, this is not going to work. And it failed. It did. Uh, there's a piece in The Guardian today. Uh, columnist Jonathan Freeland says this is a repudiation of Corbynism. He says a 1970s hard left click led the party into a dead end. 
I mean, Jeremy Corbyn seems to represent that kind of 70s hard left politics. But is is that uh, an overly simplistic way of of explaining and defining him? Not at all. He really does represent that. And I think it's actually worse than that. I mean, if you look at what was on offer last night to the British people as we were, you know, going to the final bits of voting. I mean, there were two things on offer. You either had 1940s-style collectivism, which is what Labour was promising. Massive investment, massive nationalisation, you know, back to the immediate post-war era when we'd just been through the Second World War and so collectivism looked like a good thing. Or the alternative on offer from the Conservatives was 1950s imperialism, uh, the notion that Britain is still a great country, that we can just go it alone in the world, we don't need these horrible Europeans, we'll strike a fantastic trade deal all on our own with Donald Trump, which obviously is not going to happen. And, you know, people chose the more modern of the two forms of nostalgia. They chose the 50s over the 40s. Neither is a good choice. But, you know, the reality of Labour was saying jam tomorrow for everybody and everything, and it just wasn't plausible. And, as I said, you see, the thing is this. The Labour Party loves to talk about when we created the NHS, how the Tories voted against the creation of the NHS. All true, but here's the thing. The Labour Party that created the NHS also created NATO, also was a very patriotic government. Jeremy Corbyn's always been against NATO. So, you know, that kind of collective patriotism wasn't on offer from Labour. If they offered that, it would have been different, but they didn't. And as I said, a man who has openly associated over the years with terrorists, I'm sorry. I mean, people are just not going to vote for him, especially when you're looking at constituencies um, such as Mansfield, which went conservative at 2017, Bassett Law, which went conservative last night. These are constituencies where large numbers of people still join up to be in the armed forces. They're not going to vote for a prime minister like that mentioned Tony Blair. It was, what, three majorities for Tony Blair? Three in a row. Yeah. Uh, cumulatively, the three largest in a row. And, and yet the and Labour if, Party <laughs> seems to, to keep running from that. Well, that's part of the problem. I mean, the, uh, and as the Conservatives kept pointing out, you know, the Conservatives, of course, they're Conservatives. They always criticised the previous Labour government, but they had Jeremy Corbyn criticising the previous Labour government too. I mean, you're not supposed to trash your own brand. And that was part of the problem. I mean, if you look at the difference between Blair and Corbyn, it's night and day. Blair's own seat of Sedgefield in the Northeast went conservative last night. I mean, that's a stunning indictment of Corbyn. If this is a traditional working class Northeastern community. It wasn't, I mean, I don't think we should fall for the culture war nonsense that the Tories are using, that you know, this is a rejection of the metropolitan elite in London, this kind of thing. Blair is absolutely a member of the elite, but they loved him because he spoke to them, he looked after them, and he was a patriotic prime minister, and Corbyn is a crank, frankly. Um, And, you know, rejecting Blair was a huge mistake. He remains, in my view, the best politician in the UK. His analysis of what's going on, his understanding, especially of Brexit, is phenomenal. But, you know, he's a voice in the wilderness now, and... We're going to have a very tough five years get, trying to get out of the EU, trying to find our way in the world. And plus, you have a lot of people in the UK who are rightly very worried about their future. I mean, 
Boris Johnson made some very chauvinistic comments about European Union nationals during the election, saying that they'd come to Britain and treated it as if it, they were their own country. Well, let's remember, these people came to Britain legally. We allowed them to come to Britain. And you know, that's, there's three and a half million of those people in the UK. Plus, we have one and a half million British people living in the rest of the European Union. And if we keep treating those EU nationals poorly, that is going to be affect our nationals. I mean, every EU country has made it really clear that they will respect British people living in their country if their nationals in the UK are respected too. And, and this is one of the mistakes the Conservatives have made that has actually united the Europeans against them. So we're in for a tough five years. As you alluded to, I mean, questions about whether the UK itself can hold together. Uh certainly momentum i think uh, for for scottish independence coming out of last night questions about northern ireland as well is there still a united kingdom five years from now um well my fear is that the uk will not make its centenary which is 2023 you know we were formed after the partition of ireland um the problem we have in scotland is the scottish nationalists have no mandate for an independence referendum um, the Westminster vote does not provide such a mandate. They need to win a majority in their um, Scottish Parliament elections. But those are next, uh, I think, the year after next, 2021. And the chances are the Scottish Nationalists will win those um, Parliament, uh, Scottish Assembly elections and will have another independence referendum. And by the way, Scottish independence makes Brexit look simple. Because remember, with Scottish independence... We're dealing with the future of the UK's nuclear deterrent. Right. So imagine Brexit with nukes. <laughs> yeah. That's complicated. And then as for Northern Ireland, we're now in a situation where the nationalist and Protestant representation in Westminster is nominally the same, eight seats for each. Um, in practice, of course, the Sinn Féin people don't take up their seats, so people are unrepresented. But the Democratic Unionist Party, the main representative of the Protestants in Northern Ireland, have been completely humiliated. I mean, they were used by the Conservatives, and now Boris Johnson is going to force through a withdrawal agreement that creates a customs border within the UK. Technically, that's illegal in UK law. But, you know, there is the possibility of violence starting again in Northern Ireland. I mean, it's interesting that Sinn Féin, you know, who are the political wing of the IRA, were not big fans of the Conservatives. I mean, Sinn Féin's friends in the IRA killed many Conservative politicians they support Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement because, in their view, it leads them closer to Irish unity. So, yeah. no, we have a problem. And by the way, remember, if Scotland leaves the UK, it makes keeping Northern Ireland very difficult because many of our transport, economic and defence connections go through Scotland. Challenging days ahead. Andrew, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for making some My time pleasure. for us here this afternoon. Great chatting with you. Thank you. Andrew Apostolou, a historian based in Washington, D.C., active in the Labour Party. His thoughts on what happened last night in the U.K. to his Labour Party. Uh, maybe a silver lining in, uh, in the sense that they can finally rid themselves not just of Corbyn, but what's come to be known as Corbynism. So, yes, as of this Sunday, December 15th, the second phase of the government's uh, new um, rights for passengers, Passenger Bill of Rights, takes effect. Uh, And so it sounds good on the surface that now you, the traveler, have more rights. There's more obligation on on the airlines to look after you. But is that uh, an accurate overview of what's going on here? Maybe we need to take a closer look at what this all actually stipulates and whether it's as good as advertised. Someone who has been following all of this very closely 
is uh, Gabor Lukacs. He is founder and coordinator of uh, Air Passenger Rights, more at airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be back. Well, and it's important to talk about this because obviously, uh, you know, there's a need to make sure people are aware of this and, and to understand what changes on December 15th. But uh, there, there's also, a, you know, it seems like a lot of um, optimism about this, that, that something significant is changing, that this is all going to be very good for air travelers. Is, is it as good as advertised, though? Unfortunately, uh, the new rules are shortchanging stranded passengers. Uh, you are very generously calling it an optimism. Perhaps uh, I'm less generous and I would say deception of the public by the government. I, I am having a hard time to imagine that an intelligent man, such as uh, Minister Garneau, um, who's very knowledgeable, has been astronaut for many years, would not be able to understand that uh, in the real life, things don't work like mathematical formulas. And mm-hmm. I teach mathematics, I, but one of the things everyone in, has to learn between theoretical science and real life is that in real life, you work with human beings and uh, we work with entities such as airlines that we don't want to part from their money. So they will do every possible trick not to pay. The new rules make it very easy for them. The new rules allow the airline simply to say when you're stranded, delayed, canceled flight, that, uh, oh, it was due to weather or it was because of uh, maintenance issues and refused to pay. Right. And so what's really going on, though, then? Well, what has happened is that um, I would say uh, the public and the media has fallen asleep. People people have been made aware of it a number of years ago that that things are going wrong. But over the past, uh, I guess, year, Somehow this topic was put to sleep and, uh, and, and the, some of the mainstream media uh, created the false impression that now this problem is going to be solved. Um, so I know you, you did a lot to, to draw attention to it. Um, and many radio hosts have been talking, talk shows have been discussing it. But in terms of the large masses, people don't understand what is going on. Well, let's start with, you know, and you talked about what's supposed to be compensation for stranded passengers up to $1,000 in cash, which, again, on the surface sounds sounds positive. But uh, once you read the fine print, most of the common causes of flight delays and cancellations aren't, aren't even covered by this. That's exactly the problem. You've, you've phrased it way better than I would ever be able to do. I'm not a radio host. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but we've it, all got our calling, yes. It, it's... It's um, really a, a question that they, they promise you this bombastic amount and the $1,000 are good for making headlines, but they forget to tell the public that the eligibility criteria are such that you will never meet it. In most cases, you will never meet it. What are the kinds of circumstances where, where it would apply then? That's something I would love to uh, hear from Minister Garneau. I would love to uh, see him take... A witness stand, or uh, at least uh, a, a talk show where where uh, the reporter is not uh, that friendly with the government, but actually wants to push him um, and ask him those questions. This, give me five examples of cases where actually passenger will be getting compensation in the case of flight delays or cancellations, and and also he, because he's a minister, should know the facts 
the prevalence, the percentage of the cases where it happens. So, you know, for example, if if a pilot gets drunk, and that's the reason why you don't take off, right. perhaps that would be entitling passengers to compensation, although the airline will surely say, oh, the pilot being drunk is outside of our control. But those questions would need to be asked, and, and, and the government and the transport minister should have been and should be put on the hot seat about it. So as you write, the airline only has to pay compensation if the delay or cancellation is within the airline's control and is for reasons other than maintenance. So weather issues, not in the airline's control. Maintenance issues, well, those those don't count. So what does that leave us? You, know, you mentioned the scenario of maybe a drunk pilot. What else? It's hard, it's hard to imagine what would fall under, you know, under that definition then. Indeed, that's exactly the problem. What do we make of the fact that since the first part of these uh, these new rights came into effect, uh, that there have been $45,000 in fines for Canadian Airlines? The government holds this up as, as look, proof that, that this works and that this is meaningful. But what does it say to you? It is ridiculous. $45,000 for airlines is like fining an average citizen 45 cents. We are talking about multi-billion dollar corporations. Yeah, I'm kind of speechless. I mean, what kind of warped thinking is to 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 say that forty-five thousand dollars is a lot of money for an average citizen, but not for a large corporation? It shows that the government is not determined to actually hold airlines accountable. It is just a smoke and mirror, a dog and pony show. This new poll today, uh, commissioned by the uh, Canadian Automobile Association, finds that uh, most Canadians haven't heard or read anything about these rules. So a lot of people don't even know that there have been changes. Obviously, as you've alluded to, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about these changes. What, what kind of information do, do Canadians need to know about what their rights are, but also where, where there are shortcomings here? Well, unfortunately, the government is part of the problem and not part of the solution when it comes to the confusion um, as you have seen today, you can see a transport minister uh, take the, the stand at a press conference and just lie into the cameras with open eyes, tell the public that, that uh, um, those rules are actually going to improve things, but well, actually they don't. Um, when it comes to airlines misleading the public, for example, WestJet has had a, for misleading information for a long time on its website. And uh, the Canadian transportation knows about it for a long time. I informed them personally about it, and they are doing nothing. We've talked about this before, too. I mean, you know, there, there are models we can look to. There, there are rights that exist in Europe for uh, airline travelers that, that are meaningful, uh, that, that Canada could, could easily adopt. What, does, what would you like to see uh, Canada do? Europe indeed has the gold standard for passenger compensation uh, in Europe, if a flight is later cancelled for maintenance issues, the airline is still on the hook and they have to pay cash compensation for the passenger. So I would love Canada to simply adopt the European gold standard. And I'm kind of perplexed why Canada needs to reinvent the wheel here. What do you make of the argument that that something is better than nothing, that even if these changes aren't as good as they can be, that this is still better than, than how it was before? Well, how getting no compensation by regulation is better than getting no compensation without regulations. Mm-hmm. We, we need to, when you talk about regulations, you need to look at the practical side of it. It's not mathematics where you can talk about imaginary numbers. 
you need to talk about the real numbers, how many dollars a passenger will be getting. What about the question of tarmac delays? And, and you know, we've talked about this before as well, and, and there's been some very high-profile cases of passengers stranded for hours upon hours inside the airplane on a tarmac. What, what do passengers need to know about their rights in those situations? Unfortunately, the government bundled that up to um, they uh, more than double the time passengers may be kept on a tarmac from 90 minutes to over three hours, so three hours and 45 minutes now. So three hours and 45 minutes, airlines can it's keep... It's a very long time. That is it, a very long it's time. A very, and, and just recently, as uh, in City News, uh, I was uh, watching uh, Adrian Gobriel go uh, on, on live, and he was reporting, oh, by the way, one of my colleagues is now on a plane for something like five hours, a ridiculous amount of time. So um, those, even those rules that do exist, they are not being enforced. The idea is to create passengers this sense of, Everything is right. It's feeling good uh, to be able to say when anybody complains, oh, but we have those rights. We do have the body to enforce those rights. In reality, it is completely uh, flexible plastic. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really like a, a set of rubber rules that if the government wants to interpret one way, they will interpret one way. If they want to interpret it differently, they will interpret it differently, depending on who the complainant is, who the airline is. In Europe, they have a clear system uh, which, where everybody understands what each person has to do, what obligations airlines do and do not have, and so on and so forth. All right, much more at airpassengerrights.ca on Facebook and Twitter as well. Gabor, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Rob, thank you very much for having me. All right, that is uh, Gabor Lukacs, founder and coordinator of Air Passenger Rights. Airpassengerrights.ca can find them on Facebook and Twitter as well, as mentioned. So he says these changes are really not meaningful, despite the government spin. Uh, so as much as Canadians need to understand what has changed, he wants Canadians to understand uh, that these are not really meaningful changes, or as meaningful as they could be. Uh, and certainly the point about compensation for delays for stranded passengers... It's pretty narrow how that applies, as mentioned. You are not eligible for compensation for most common cases of flight delays. If there are weather issues, doesn't apply. If it's aircraft maintenance, doesn't apply. So you, you've already right there eliminated probably the vast majority of, of flight delays. So what does that leave you with? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.